Imagine you're directing your first feature film. And you're not only directing it, you've also written the screenplay. And that was adapted from a best-selling novel. Since you're a first-timer, let's go ahead and give you the best cinematographer in the business to help you along. As for your cast, well, how about a well-known leading man fresh off a Hollywood blockbuster and a supporting cast that ranges from well-known character actors to a genuine Hollywood legend? Now let's imagine your producers run out of money and your movie gets shut down. You're about to lose your leading man. While you're looking for additional funding, he's got other offers and he's not going to wait around forever. What do you do? How do you get him to stick around? For William Richard, the answer was simple. Make another movie. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're going to take a look at the crazy but true production of the 1979 movie, Winter Kills. Welcome to the industry. Winter Kills began life as a novel by Robert Condon, the author of The Manchurian Candidate. Published in 1973, it centers around Nick Keegan, the half-brother of an assassinated president. Nick hears a deathbed confession from one of the assassins to being part of a wide-ranging conspiracy. Now, if a presidential assassination conspiracy theory sounds familiar, well, you're right. Winter Kills is a fictionalized and very thinly-veiled version of the John F. Kennedy assassination. A number of the characters are clearly based on real people. For example, Nick's father, a string-pulling millionaire tycoon, sounds a lot like JFK's millionaire tycoon father, Joseph Kennedy. My personal favorite of all these is President Keegan's assassin himself was killed a day later in a police station by a nightclub owner named Joe Diamond. And you don't have to be a scholar to know that Joe Diamond sounds a lot like Jack Ruby. Okay, now let's enter a couple of producers. Richard Sterling and Leonard Goldberg. These are young guys starting out in the industry, and right now, at this point, they had released the French softcore porn hit, Emmanuel, in the U.S., and were looking to up their resume with something a bit more mainstream. This duo settled on Winter Kills as their next project. They would eventually hire William Richard to adapt the screenplay. Everything about Winter Kills was you know, it was from the very beginning, bigger than life. That's William Richard. At the time, he had only made a couple of documentaries and written the screenplay for Law and Disorder, a comedy starring Carol O'Connor and Ernest Borgnine. Oh, and he had written the screenplay for one other movie. You know, I'd written The Happy Hooker, too, by that time. Mm-hmm. That was okay. a big successful screenplay. I mean, that was a big, commercially successful movie. When the first choice for a director wasn't available, they turned to Richard, who had never directed a feature before, to direct his own screenplay. I was not attached as a director or anything. They wanted me to adapt it. How okay. I got to direct it was when it was finished, they wanted, I, you know, a well-known, good director at the time. I can't remember who it was, but I, I wish I could. I'm trying to think of the director that they wanted to get. It was Milos Foreman that he can't remember. Foreman at the time had just done One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In the story of Winter Kills, Nick Keegan is going around and investigating his half-brother's murder and interviewing all sorts of different kinds of characters. It was Richard's idea to fill the supporting cast with well-known character actors from Hollywood's golden age. But first, he needed to get a leading man, and hopefully then everything else would fall into place. 
His first choice for Nick Keegan was Jeff Bridges. Now, Bridges at the time was hot off the remake of King Kong. I knew Jack Gilardi, who was Jeff's agent, and so I said, I'm, yeah, I went there and I was going to get Jeff Bridges. And I did. Went through Gilardi and then at Joe Allen's, I met a guy who was friends with Jeff up in Malibu, and I said, I'm trying to reach him. Da-da-da. And the next thing I know, I got a call from uh, somebody who said, Jeff is willing to meet with you. I said, because I told him I live in Malibu, and, you know, next week or something. So then I went and rented an apartment in Malibu on the coast. This is true. <laughs> came to meet me. I was sitting in the sink. I was I was going to answer the door, but there were no, there was no furniture, no nothing. It was a bare apartment. And I was sitting in the sink, and the next thing I know, the door woke up, and, and he says, you know, hey, dude, or whatever the... And I said, how you doing? And I was in the sink. So we had breakfast. So we went and had breakfast together. I said, well, let's go to breakfast. And he said, yeah. And so we went and had breakfast on PCH, and there was a roadhouse on PCH. And we were having breakfast, and I started to tell him the story of Winter Kills. And then I started acting out certain parts that he's listening. And then I acted out this scene. I said, he says it. And he says it. I'm sitting there, I'm just so intense. And the next thing you know, these people started to applaud in the fucking restaurant. And I said, Jeff, we got to do this movie. Yes. And he said, yes. For Pa Keegan, the Joseph Kennedy in the story, he cast John Huston. As an actor, he's probably best remembered as Faye Dunaway's father in Chinatown. But Houston is really remembered as the director of a number of movies, like The Man Who Would Be King, The Maltese Falcon, Key Largo, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which featured his father, Walter Houston. Just a quick antidote about John. Leaving L.A., we went to you know the Santa Monica Airport, which is where we left with the helicopter, and we were sitting there and getting ready and having a coffee in the little tiny room next to the helicopter pad, and uh, some guy comes over. He says, you're John Houston. I said, yes, I am. He said, boy, your father was a great actor. Huh? And John said, yes, he was. Yes, he was. I'll just never forget that moment because it was like suddenly that John vanished. Everything vanished. John was talking about his father. And Houston had also directed Jeff Bridges in the movie Fat City. So there was a connection between those two. And Richard would also go on to cast Sterling Hayden, Eli Wallach, and Anthony Perkins. So Tony Perkins, anyway, shows up at the office, and he's Tony Perkins, and he brings in his, you know, beautiful English bicycle, and he brings it right into the office, and he's wearing very tight clothes and a little kind of cap like a jockey. So I start to talk to him about the character and how he would be, uh, you know, what it was about, and da-da-da, and all that. He says, oh, I know, I know, I know. He says, I can imagine uh, why you would want me in this movie but he said but why should I want to be in this movie I said because you couldn't think of anybody else who could do it better could you he said no I said well that's why he said why don't you come to the theater you know I'm on Broadway right now I said yes I'm starring in Equus I said yes he said I'll, I'll arrange I'll leave it, a ticket at the box office the next thing I know I'm in uh, Tony Perkins dressing room so I'm and he's taking off the grease paint with his things and he said you know Bill said in that in the second act it was only a two act but he said that speech and he said um, I was getting laughs for weeks I was getting laughs and he said I stopped getting them what do you think about that I just stopped getting the laughs and I realized this was kind of a fucking test I said you were getting all these laughs and then you stopped getting them he said yes and he's still thinking all that I said well were you listening for them then he looked at me I said did you start to listen for the laughs huh. would that have affected your speech he just looks at me and he throws down this thing. 
He said, follow me. Now I'm going, he's taking off his napkin and I'm walking out the dressing room and we walk right through the lobby and there's still people waiting around and stuff. And we walk right down thing and he walks on He walks me right backstage and right onto the stage of the theater where all the ropes were for the horses. And he stops me right in the stage, in the center of the stage. And he looks at me and he looks around and he said, I love the theater. Don't you? And I said, absolutely. He said, good. And he spins just like he did in the movie, actually, with that characteristic spin of hers, and walks straight off the stage and leaves me standing there. And as he walks out the door, he said, call my agent in the morning. With things falling into place, he also was able to get Ralph Meeker, Toshira Mifune, Dorothy Malone, Richard Boone, and for his leading lady, a journalist that Bridges' character is absolutely mad about, he cast an unknown actress, Belinda Bauer, who would not only be Bridges' leading lady, but also be in a relationship with Richard soon after as well. Benny Chavez, on just off Park Avenue, she was on 62nd and Park in a, a, a brownstone. And I remember, you know, I was with her on her sofa, and we were romantically involved, and at the... I looked up out the windows, which were like cathedral windows in her brownstone apartment. Mm-hmm. And I looked up across the street on the top floor. A girl was getting dressed in front of a mirror. I could see it. And I and she looked like the most beautiful creature I'd ever seen. She looked a little bit like if Snow White had turned into 25. And, uh-huh. and that was my first glimpse of Belinda Bauer. Uh-huh. And I said to Ben, I said, Boy, you see that girl? And then she disappeared right up there. She said, oh, that's Belinda. She's one of our top models. I said, really? She said, yeah. I said, she's just perfect for a role I'm doing. And remember I mentioned a Hollywood legend? Well, for an uncredited silent cameo, he got Elizabeth Taylor. Outside her suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I, I light up just before I go in, and I suddenly turn... And I can see these two guys coming down the hall. Right. And I just knocked on her, her door, right? So I, and, and I put the joint in my pocket, but the, the whole thing. So these guys are coming toward me. And at that moment, Elizabeth Taylor opens the door. And, and, I'm, and I can feel behind me that everything stops. Those guys aren't coming any further. So. Oh, okay. And she said, hello. And I said, hello. And I said, oh, my God, your eyes are violent, aren't they? My mother would swoon all over again. She said, come inside. And so I went inside, and she was sitting. So we went around the corner of her suite, and there was a very distinguished-looking guy. You know, mm-hmm. and that was John Warner, her husband. And she said, you don't mind if John sits with us, do you? He's just reading the paper. He said, I'm just reading the paper. I said, okay. So I started telling the story, and I said, well, basically, you're the, uh, the pimp for the president of the United States. You're a woman who gets him his girls. She said, oh, yes, I read that. I said, I said, and, and then, of course, that, you know, creates all kinds of problems to him. And maybe it even leads to the uh, connections with the mob who helped bring about his murder. Uh, John moves his paper down. And he said, well, there are those theories, you know. And she said, oh, it's so delicious. She said, John, we've got to do this. Oh. He said, yes, we should. And so she said, well, I'm going to do this. I said, oh, it's marvelous, Elizabeth. Thank you. You know, it went out a little bit longer, but it was basically just just like that. Add in cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt, who was hired to shoot the film. Vilmos at that time had 
done a number of 70s classics, including McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Deliverance, The Long Goodbye, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. With a production budget for Winter Kills set at $6.5 million, shooting begins in 1977. The problem here is that Sterling and Goldberg do not have $6.5 million. Now, they do have enough to start the movie. And there's one other thing. Sterling and Goldberg aren't just fledgling movie producers. They're also marijuana smugglers. Here's William Richard on his first meeting with them, which was perhaps not surprisingly in Miami. I got there and I said, they're going to give me some per diem when I get there, right? Right away. I remember getting there and I got an envelope full of, you know, cash from Sterling. It met me at the airport or something. And the next thing I know, I'm in, the, in Key Biscayne and it didn't take me long to figure out that Bob Sterling had something going on in Key Biscayne. So the movie gets started and it's going along fine. Filming is taking place at MGM Studios, and Sterling and Goldberg are writing checks for everything at first, and then eventually... All their checks bounced, because the money that was supposed to come in, I guess, from Florida, yeah. didn't get into the bank, and then and wouldn't clear so that, you know, there was just no money. The first time, we didn't had no idea about the financial problems, and we're on a, the big set where Sir Rudy breaks Jeff's arm, uh, we're, sorry, where Jeff breaks Perkins' arm with that uh, oh, yeah. baton, which turned out to be a real baton, and Perkins had to go to the hospital. But we were on that set, and the set was like five or six stories up. It was a big soundstage at MGM. And uh, you had to get up only by an elevator. And, and we were up rehearsing part of the scene, and all of a sudden, as Domo Zygmunt was coming up, the lights at the soundstage, all the lights started to blink. And 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 Vilma said, I keep shooting until there's no light at all. And the next thing you know, the elevator stops. And the whole place goes dark. Oh, wow. And these huge doors suddenly open. It was just like the scene in uh, in uh, in um, that thing with uh, Charles Lawton, Hunchback of Notre Dame. It was like we were all hunchbacks suddenly looking down. And the Union guys were walking across the floor and they said, you're shut down. Nobody works. You're shut down. Nobody works. They're walking across the floor, and next thing I know, ladders are being put up because there's no way to get down. And so we're all climbing down these rickety ladders. You know, Jeff Bridges, uh, you know, Tony Perkins, me, and, and Bill Most, and the crew is standing at the bottom, and I'm walking because there's a lot of crew, and there are 100 people or so working on this thing now. And uh, don't worry, boss. We'll come up with the money. Don't worry, boss. We're going to fix this. And I'm walking down now. I'm outside this thing. I'm walking between Tony Perkins and Jeff Bridges down the main thoroughfare at MGM Studios. It's kind of like a, a road that goes by all the sound stages and it heads towards the uh, the uh, commissary and the main building. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Tony's telling me about, don't worry, Billy, you'll find the money. I remember this happened to Orson. We were in the middle of a scene and he, we were shooting with a Volkswagen and he put uh, a cord around both of the doors and put the camera on his back and pulled the both spot. We finished the scene. And I, and I said, yeah, Tony, but, the, you know, the, our camera weighs half a ton and nobody will let me touch it. It's all unionized. <laughs> so we get to the, you know, and, and then we're in the restaurant and all oh, that has never been so full because here is the biggest movie on the lot. It's just been shut down. This is the first shutdown that happens. 
But a couple of weeks later, more cash arrives and production ramps back up, this time moving to Philadelphia to shoot. We, we started again, and I think the next place we went was to Philadelphia. I was so sick in Philadelphia when we did the scenes in Philadelphia because uh, I got sick after that. I mean, when the movie shut down and you don't have to sleep for weeks, and now you don't have money to finish it. So we get there, and in Philadelphia, that's when they came after one our guy uh, with a shotgun because somebody else hadn't been paid, and we had, they had to wait, come up with cash. Wait a so, second. And then wait, we did, who came then after we who with the shotgun? Sh- wait, the, uh, you, wait, I, I got to hear this shotgun story. Who came after somebody with a shotgun? Well, John Stark, but then he was our our uh, production manager. And while we were, you know, and they came at him at a, at a hotel and knocked on his door, the, uh, some of the equipment people from L.A., and they followed him. And the guy had a shotgun. And he said, you're going to give me, my, you owe me $10,000. Holy crap. And you're going to give it to me. And they did. They went and got him the money. And then we left Philadelphia. And it turns out we didn't have the money to pay the hotels because the money was being kited from bank to bank. The more detailed version of the shotgun story is that it was for money owed for a generator. The guys who needed their generator money put a shotgun to Stark's neck and demanded the money. Stark went to go see one of the producers to get the money, and when he got there, he encountered a woman in her underwear who pulled a bundle of cash from her underwear and gave it to Stark to give to the men with the shotgun. A number of actors would never get paid for winter kills, including Eli Wallach. Now, one exception to this was Elizabeth Taylor, who had been paid before she ever stepped foot on set. No, that doesn't mean that winter kills financial problems didn't reach her in a way as well. So one in one scene, it's not in the movie. She was uh, writing a furious letter to the president because the president was not going to see her anymore. She was not going to be allowed in the White House. Camera watching her in the scene. She's writing furiously in this piece of paper, right? And she's afraid to see her paper down on the ground. And then she looks at me and she hands me the piece of paper. She said, read it. So I look at the piece of paper and I unwrap it. And it says, if Bill Richard does not give me that fur coat, I will not give him another close-up in this movie. Which is what she was writing in that incredible scene. It was just so. Then I got her to fight with her at the uh, polo lounge. It was a totally made up fight about that coat, right? <laughs> she wanted that coat. It was a beautiful coat. Did you give her the coat? And we gave her the coat, and the furrier repossessed the coat because we didn't have the money to pay for it. Get out of here. Oh, this. All right. Now, this is. Is Sterling and Goldberg still around at this point? When when all of. Within this oh, first- yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're still raising. We're still in production. It was a big thing. Elizabeth came to a big party we had, and uh, we uh, got the code, and Fred Caruso, our producer, was there, and he said, we managed to get the money, and I handed it to me, and I put it on, and then, you know. Three months later, they took it back from her for It's kind of embarrassing. Winter Kills is shut down for a third time. Even though a good portion of the movie is done, there's still more key scenes to shoot, and there's no restart coming up on the horizon. The movie is officially shut down. This is when a new opportunity shows up. Uh, and when Winter Kills shut down, then uh, Dan Blatt said, you know, we have this screenplay, and we can't really figure out what to do with that. Maybe you look at it. And so I did. 
and uh, it was about a middle-aged couple basically torturing each other in Paris. It was based on an old, old movie that was with the Agua, and I'm calling you, I forget their names, but you, you know. And uh, he, they had written a screenplay about a guy, a man who pretended to be someone else to woo his wife and that with musical, and, and uh, Larry Cohen wrote a script from that, and but he made it all like, you know, kind of a nasty, you know, like a, not cleverly nasty like Virginia Woolf, but they were a couple and they were middle ass. So I threw the whole fucking thing out and started all over. And with with uh, Belinda and I imp- imp- improvised scenes in Manhattan, and I'd made the, my ballet film, so I put the dance stuff in there. And so we wrote a satire, uh, partly based on all aspects of our relationship and other things. And and made, you know, I wrote a script in about six weeks. The movie was originally called The American Success Company, though these days you'll find it under the shortened title of Success. And with this new movie, Richard had the perfect guy in mind for the lead, Jeff Bridges. Jeff was about to do a movie for Antonioni. That's Michelangelo Antonioni he's referring to, the Italian director, perhaps best known for the 1966 feature Blow Up. I can't believe I remember that, but I remember that. So I said, now he's doing a movie in Italy. I said, this is not going to be, because that, my idea was, I said, Jack, we'll get, we're going to, Jeff can be in this movie, mm-hmm. and then we'll, you know, and when it's done, when I'm raising money for other one, and we'll, we'll finish both of them. He said, no. So I went up to Jeff's house in Las Flores Canyon in Malibu, and I was telling him, I, you know, and talked about the script. I had sent him the script, and he was off, you know, in two weeks, he was going, I said, just let's, let's look at this character a little bit, Jeff. So I talked to him. So we went up, we started having some drinks. And Jeff, you know, when he starts to work, he goes on fast. You know, and he eats only soup because he tends to get a little chubby sometimes between films. So he's got to really. So he was on a complete fast for like <laughs> eight days or anything, right? Yeah. So a couple of shots of vodka, man. We were off and running, and I was he was doing. So I said, here, grab it. So he grabbed the poker stick. I said, take this. I said, this is your cane. And he took the cane, and he's walking around the room with this poker stick. I said, great, huh? He said, yeah. Oh, I got my actor. So now he turned down the Antonioni movie and decided to do success. The one constant thing I read about the movie's success is that the primary reason Richard made it was to fund the remaining scenes of Winter Kills. But according to him, that's not exactly the reason. Did you make success primarily so you could fund the rest of Winter Kills? No, I made success so that I would have my actors in place when the money came in for Winter Kills so we could finish Winter Kills. Okay. okay. So Jeff wouldn't be doing another movie, you see. Uh, My idea was we'd finish success, go right back and finish Winter Kills as an aspect of finishing success. And that's sort of what happened. So William Richard heads to Munich to film success. And that had a whole other series of problems. And along with him are his Winter Kills leads of Jeff Bridges and co-star slash girlfriend Belinda Bauer. The supporting cast includes Ned Beatty, Stephen Keats, John Glover, and Bianca Jagger. And Richard is able to complete filming with no interruptions. Which, of course, does not mean there weren't any issues. The long and short of it was success was uh, we came back, we made it, uh, Columbia looked at the picture, but it didn't have voiceover, and it didn't, you know, it, it was like the first cut of the movie, and they were already selling it. It was a tax shelter picture. They took basically my rough cut and 
said it's done, we'll sell it. And they started selling it. They didn't give a shit. They just wanted to get whatever money they could. But I was still working on the movie. And it was shot in Munich. And I do recall the woman who became head of the studio, Pia Arnold, because we had big arguments during the make of the movie. She couldn't figure out any of the jokes. I had a hard time. I was making a comedy, a subtle comedy in Germany with people that didn't understand my jokes. <laughs> and also, most of them didn't speak English. They spoke German. Uh. Except for the English crew, and the English crew was always fighting with the Germans. Amazing. I think about it. But I had big fights with her. But then, when we had the first screening of the movie, when we had the first screening, she came, this huge, tall woman, Pia Arnold, she was really six foot three or four, and, and with a kind of a, a haircut that they have on people that do the clocks in Europe. I mean, that, that funny kind of European haircut. So anyway, she knelt down in front of me. And she said, for years we have waited for a Lubitsch. And I see that you are here. Of course, nothing happened like that. With them. Then I still had two more years to get it out. And Columbia wasn't going to release it. They sent me and Belinda on a weird press tour, which turned out to be a way that they could get out of their contract to release the movie by saying we had screenings and it didn't work in these towns. Then we showed it to, we went to, uh, we went, we showed it in Boston and it was a dinner table set for like 80 people and it was only me and, and Belinda and two other reporters who showed up. Then we went back uh, and Cubby and said, it's a failure, we're not going to release it. Success isn't getting released, but the funding is now in place to finish Winter Kills. It's now 1979, and Winter Kills has been on hold for two years. Richard is able to film the remaining scenes, and the movie is finished and scheduled to be released in May of 1979. But on April 25th, just a couple of weeks prior to the Winter Kills release, and one day after his 33rd birthday, producer Leonard Goldberg was found handcuffed and shot to death in his New York City apartment, allegedly killed for missing a payment to the mafia. The movie does finally have its premiere in New York City on May 17, 1979. And while there are a couple of not-so-good reviews, but there are also some really great reviews as well. Vincent Camby's review in the New York Times raved that it, quote, ranks with Citizen Kane as the all-time great American movie. Now, with praise like this, Surely Winter Kills is due to have a nice long life in the theater, right? Yeah, it's open for uh, maybe 10 days, a week or 10 days. And suddenly it's not in the theaters anymore. And, and do, uh, what do they tell you as to why it gets pulled out of theaters? Is there is, Well, is there one excuse? guy says to me, Bill, they're coming out of the theaters and telling people not to go in. People are coming out of the theaters after watching your movie and they're telling people not to go in. And that was one of the things. Uh, so I guess it offended certain people. So what happened? Some people have JFK conspiracy theories, and some people have Winter Kills conspiracy theories. The most popular thought is that in 1979, Ted Kennedy was considering running for president, which he did, and the Kennedy family didn't need some movie bringing up all this conspiracy business again and pressured the movie's distributor, Embassy Films, to yank it from theaters. Author Richard Condon theorized that Embassy had been pressured from their own parent company, Avco Embassy, which had defense contracts with the United States government, and that the Kennedys were pressuring them. And last but not least, in March of 1979, the House Select Commission on Assassinations, which had been formed in 1976 to look at the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King, had put out their findings 
Now, could that have anything to do with it? I doubt it. You know, I went to Gills is still a movie, and I was, but it, I think it had a lot to do with, uh, you know, the, the, the probably the Kennedy family probably didn't like it, which is too bad because I was just using them as a mythical group. I wasn't, you know, I, I never, I, I don't think, I mean, I never really thought of it that that they might be offended by it. But then... And what about Goldberg's partner, Richard Sterling? Eventually, Bob Sterling was arrested and spent 12 years in jail. And, he, and I went to visit him at Ossining. He said he was in jail because he made winter kills. Oh, get out of here, Ted. That's what he told me. I didn't believe it either. No, okay. he got jailed because they, he, he tried to smuggle, a, a, you know, a huge freighter <laughs> okay. of marijuana up through uh, the Northwest. You know, it was the biggest pot bust in history. I mean, a whole tanker full of pot. Bob was a very, he was an amazing guy. Still so, is. Now he's in the organic food business. Sterling was arrested in 1981 and originally sentenced to 40 years in prison. But Winter Kills wasn't exactly dead yet. A few years later, in 1982, Richard, along with former 20th Century Fox Vice President Claire Townsend, formed a company called The Invisible Studio, which was put together to get Winter Kills and success back into theaters, which they did. First, Success was able to get a small release starting at the Public Theater in New York. He was able to even get a hold of the unused promotional materials from Columbia for it. So while this is going on, I remember I walked into the offices on that floor with the Columbia. I got in because I, I, they were, you know, I had earlier permissions to be on the lot. And I went into the offices and I, I said, I said, hi, how you doing, this secretary? I said, where are, I said, Don, where are the success files? I'm looking around. And somebody said, oh, they're over there. I said, oh, thanks. So I got all the files. I just took them. Took them. You got all of the publicity they had done that they were never going to use. You just walked in and took it. Yes, I did. Then Winter Kills, which was re-edited by Richard in a director's cut, was back in theaters in early 1983, playing in New York and Los Angeles. Currently, you can find the director's cut of Winter Kills and Success both on Amazon Prime. You can also check them out on William Richard's own website at williamrichard.com. This episode of The Industry was written, edited, and hosted by Dan Delgado. Music in this episode is courtesy of Silent Partner, Wayne Jones, and BizBaz Studios. Thanks to our guest, William Richard, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. So join us again soon for another story of the things that went on in the industry. Good night.